the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Later in the show, we'll be examining Airgrid's report into how electricity should be generated here in 20 years' time. Kevin O'Sullivan of the Irish Times will give us his view on this crucial issue. And Barry Halloran of the Irish Times will also take us through the aviation regulator's decision on passenger charges for Dublin Airport, which the DA has described as a disaster for the economy. But first, Laura Slattery joins me in the studio to run through some of the major business stories of the week. Laura, you're very welcome. And um, We're going to start with Google and yet more expansion in Dublin. Tell us about that. That's right. Yeah, Google is taking over even more office space in uh, the city, a.k.a. Google Town. Um, it's going to rent, or it's certainly in talks to rent, 202,000 square foot um, at the sorting office, which is uh, in the Dublin Docklands, not that far from its cluster of buildings, existing mm. buildings here. So, it's um, on Cardiff Lane, which many people might be familiar with, runs from yeah. the, the Keys down to Pierce Street. So it's very near the Board Gosh Energy Theatre, but it's also quite close to the HQ of uh, companies like Facebook and Airbnb and, of course, Google itself. I mean, I could list through all the different buildings that Google currently rents mm. in Dublin, but I'd be here for some time if I did. But they're spreading their wings a little bit because uh, they've built this kind of uh, campus, I suppose, around Barrow Street. Uh, if people know it, it's quite close to uh, Rings End, not far from the Aviva Stadium as well. Um, but they've, they've they've moved out to Sandyford and elsewhere now, haven't they? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I should say that um, both this story about uh, Google uh, renting this block now on uh, Cardiff Lane and a recent story about Sandyford, as you say, they're from our Irish Times uh, Deputy Property Editor, Ronald Quinlan. He's been mm. reporting on this. And Sandyford was sort of seen as, oh, well, yeah, branching out, as you say. Um, but this new one, I suppose, is a kind of a, a confirmation that it really sees the city centre, the Docklands area, as its sort of main hub. Um, its biggest investment in the Dublin office market actually came last year where there was a 300 million deal to acquire the whole Boland's Key scheme. So it's really, uh, this is giving Google the opportunity to expand its workforce here from about 8,000 up to about 10,000, we think, which is um, a pretty huge number of employees to have in the city. Um, though it should be said that uh, globally, Google is totally expanding uh, at a rapid rate. It actually hired uh, 6,000, 6,500 new workers just in the last quarter. It now employs 114,000 people totally across the globe and that's up 20,000 year on year. So this is a really fast, uh, fast expanding business. Yeah, good for Ireland, obviously. A lot of jobs. I mean, they're well-paid jobs, uh, good jobs, etc. But um, should the day ever come, of course, uh, let's hope it doesn't, but if, if Google were ever to pull out of this market, obviously it would leave a big hole um, behind it. But anyway, let's hope um, that's that's not going to happen. Now, let's talk about uh, banking. And KBC had a report out uh, this week on home buying trends. That's right. Another interesting um, survey from KBC Bank, just looking at, at home buyer behaviour, how it's changed. And their chief economist, Austin Hughes, he says, um, you know, he's detecting a kind of uh, increasing tendency among buyers to want to future proof their home purchases. So, so essentially, two thirds of people intend to live in the property they buy for more than 10 years, which is a sort of a rising percentage. And he's saying that's down to sort of people, they're more likely to want to seek the sort of the home of their dreams, sort of the, the perfect home. You know, if, if they can't afford to get on the ladder at all, they want to get on a ladder in a way that they're not going to have to upgrade again, you know, cl- you know, go p- up the ladder step by step. Because over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, there's been an incredible amount of difficulty in doing that. 
Um, people have seen quite a lot of dysfunction in the market. It's hard to, you know, once you buy somewhere, it hasn't always been easy, you know, I guess, through the, the, the crash. And there's a legacy of negative equity to uh, take that next step. So we saw people who may be buying smaller properties that needed to expand when their family expanded and weren't always able to do so because of the, the economic situation. But also because there's this particular, I guess, transactional kind of difficulties in the market as well. People aren't really uh, racing to get back in, back into that. So they, they want to buy and, and be able to live there for as long as they possibly can. Yeah, which isn't unreasonable, I guess. Uh, Brexit, I suppose, has been weighing somewhat on the Irish uh, property market. And of course, we know now that uncertainty is going to continue until the end of January, at least because of this extension that's been granted by the European Union. And we have a, a general election coming up in Britain. Yeah, I mean, in a way, you know, that, you know, these are contributing to nervousness in consumer sentiment as well, which is another factor. Um, the fact that uh, house prices aren't going up at, at the same rate that they were, in fact, they're, they're falling in Dublin, um, is also another reason why I guess people are, feel content to sit back and wait um, and not compromise in the way that they might have done at a time when things are getting a little bit hot and feverish. Yeah, sure. Okay. Now, let's go luxury. And the luxury goods group LVMH has bid to take over the US publicly quoted jeweller Tiffany's for a mere $14.5 billion. Give us the backdrop to this, Laura. Yeah, so LVMH, it's already um, the biggest luxury goods group in the world. So it's uh, Louis Vuitton, um, Moet and Chandon, Champagne, uh, Hennessy, Cognac. Um, it also owns Christian Dior, uh, jewellers like Bulgari, watchmaker like Tag Heuer. And um, the the kind of the, the big the head honcho there is uh, Europe's richest man. That's uh, uh, Bernard Arnault, Frenchman. It's a Paris listed group. And he could, in fact, if, you know, this deal goes through, he could actually wind, wind up being the richest man in the world because... Um, he's already worth about 97 billion. So it's only Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates who are ahead of him. And he's got his eye on Tiffany's. Uh, he sees the nice sparkly jewellery in the window. And, uh, you know, they're a famous company. Um, some might say iconic. We're not supposed to use that word. But anyway. <laughs> um, we will. Yeah. Uh, um, they, of course, um, had their own <laughs> starring role. Uh, in the uh, book and film Breakfast at Tiffany's and uh, it's associated with New York Fifth Avenue um, you know they effectively uh, popularised the concept of uh, diamond engagement rings throughout the 20th century so they're a very attractive um, you know target for acquisition and one of the things you know they've said now that you know they're reviewing the offer um, but one of the things um, the um, LVMH uh, move might do is actually flush out some some rival suitors. So it's not a done deal. There may well be a couple of other European uh, luxury well, mind goods you, with groups. a price tag of fourteen and a half billion dollars, there can't be too many suitors, other suitors out there, and possibly not great news for consumers of these luxury products because obviously LVMH is going to have to get its money back. Uh, which might mean higher prices at the till. Well, it might do, but they've. I suppose the real um, bet for all of these companies is China. So they're looking at the sort of expanding group of consumers. Uh, so um, I guess they're looking at a group as well that's maybe not so price sensitive as you know you would find in other types of retail. So um, so you know, Kering, for example, they own Gucci and Yves Saint Laurent. And uh, Richemont, the the watchmaker, you know, they may be sort of circling around this too. 
But certainly, uh, you know, Tiffany's, it's a company, as I said, that dates back to the uh, 1830s. It's uh, <laughs> could be a very nice prize for somebody. OK, we'll see how that plays out. Laura Slardy, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Now, earlier this week, Airgrid, which manages the electricity transmission system here, produced a report on Ireland's electricity generation over the next 20 years, and it's come up with three scenarios. Kevin O'Sullivan of the Irish Times covered the story, and he joins me here in studio. Kevin, you're very welcome. Just take us through, uh, first of all, maybe just give us the backdrop to how electricity in Ireland is generated at present. Yeah, well, uh, Airgrid um, is responsible really for the transmission system, and that, that means that it has to have the the structure in place to, to deliver electricity uh, to the key points from where it's generated. Uh, now, the ESB then takes it over and is, is, is responsible for distribution. So uh, separately then AirGrid provides um, power to, to big energy consumers as well, like like industry. And you can see the big demand that's emerging, for example, in data centres, and that has to be sort of factored in in, in its development. But the, uh, given its role in Ireland, we're only one part of the island and it has a um, Sony in the north, which is its equivalent in the north. And, and that, uh, it's envisaged, will operate in, in complementing the whole island in terms of, of the role in, yeah, sure. in terms of the transmission system. But there's two big overriding things that are kicking in, and that is the, the demanding energy targets, notably renewable energy targets that are coming from the EU and also our climate obligations. Now, those have been stepped up further again by the government adopting its climate a- uh, climate action plan. And again, the, the EU is stepping up ambition in the period up to 2030. So Air, AirGrid, um, in its wisdom, has seen this emerging, but also you're talking about a scenario where there's much more... Uh, demand for power in coming decades. Uh, we have a growing economy, probably. Uh, we have a growing population, certainly for the next few decades. So um, that these are big factors that, mm. uh, that, that kick in. And it's all about sustainability, isn't it? You know, some of this electricity that we're generating at the minute is actually uh, coal powered, isn't it? Coal, it is. It's, it's yes. fueled by yeah. coal, essentially. Yeah, yeah, it is indeed. And, and peat now... Both those are, are no-nos in a sense in dirty terms fuels. of climate. Dirty fuels, we have to get out of them as quickly as possible while you know maintaining a support for communities that are going to be impacted in the Midlands or in County Clare where Money Point is, is going to stop using coal. We don't yeah. know exactly what future role it will have, but, but that's in the short-term horizon. So uh, Money Point will stop using coal by, by 2025, if not sooner. And... Um, Peach, likewise, in terms of power stations in the middle in the Midlands, so the the, the demands in terms of using renewables are meanwhile mm. stepping up. And in fairness to AirGrid, they have had notable success in taking renewables onto the electricity grid, and it's quite remarkable what they they're already achieving. Um, and that's, 25, 30%? Yeah, it's, it's very impressive on a global scale. But what, what's kicking in now is a, a, a specific measure in the Climate Action Plan, that is to have 70% of electricity from renewable sources by 2030. That's a hugely demanding target that is concentrating mines. So this was uh, a key sort of driver in terms of you know them looking forward over the next few decades, notably out to 2040, in terms of how how the market might change. And so they engaged in this big uh, 
this consultation process, which was, you know, good engagement with the industry and with others. Um, and then they, ha- they had four scenarios. And one very quickly, it was clear, was just not sufficient in terms of pace of change and adaptation of renewable energy. So that was dropped. Uh, so the report that they have published this week, which is called Tomorrow's Energy Scenarios, comes up with three. And um, they're very interesting scenarios. They're, it's well worth anyone interested in it or in the, the energy business mm. delving into them. But uh, two of them will achieve that 70% target by 2030, but in, in different kind of ways. And one of them is the one, is the failure. And, and that's that's uh, described in the report as as delayed transition. So we're, where the transition to uh, to renewable energy to decarbonisation just doesn't happen. People acknowledge that there's climate change or we must change, but in sure. reality, they, they, they don't change. So how do we get to the 70% level? What's our grid's view on this? Well, they, the, the two scenarios are quite different, actually, uh, and, and the, the, the outcome is, is largely the same in terms of achieving that scenario by 2030. But uh, the first one is they've classified as centralised energy, and that's where we, we, we achieve that big aim of you know decarbonizing Ireland and and moving quickly to a, a low carbon future is probably the best way of describing it and there's a significant step change in terms of electrification of transport in terms of heating in terms of using heat pumps in in homes instead of fossil fuels um, and combined with with elect, with energy efficiency and uh, you know that there's a significant uptake of, of the options that are there but the key thing in that scenario is there's still big generators you know, generating the bulk of the fuel, whether it's wind, uh, solar, or, or gas, or whatever, um, you know that they dominate this planned kind of environment. And um, so, the one significant element that they identify in that is offshore wind, and um, you know the, the potential for that is very, very significant. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but and we're starting we're, to see a number of projects. Yes, off the East we Coast are. Yeah. Of now there's big issues around planning to get you know accelerated development of it but the potential is is really there there's no doubt about that and there's a international energy agency report this week confirming that it's quite phenomenal the the pricing changes are going to happen but also what what it can generate in terms of other fuel sources but uh Another element in that sort of scenario is that carbon capture and storage technology is beginning to be rolled out, but you know, unfortunately, we're not there yet. So that's that's sort of some somewhere down the road, but clearly, it's it happens. So the the other scenario which which gets you to that point in twenty thirty is the coordinated action, as as they call it, and that is a very interesting difference because it's less of the big players and more of the engaged consumers, the engaged citizens that are that are participating in the in the energy system. You know, they're they're using smart technology to to control when they they get electricity there. They are uh, they're they're part of the micro generation club in terms of generating Mm. locally and getting paid for it remarkably in contrast to what happens now. But you can see the obvious uh, sort of synergies then with communities, sports clubs, schools, small businesses tapping into that market, and and you know there's there's big things that that sort of help it like artificial intelligence, really good smart technology, um, and the Internet of Things. So that's you know it, it's a different emphasis, but it still gets you there. And uh, that particular scenario is interesting because they classify that as 
as the one where there is highest demand for, for power as well. Yeah, OK. Now, um, they came up with three scenarios, but they didn't actually make any recommendations. Why not? No. Well, I think you see Mark Foley puts it very well. There's a whole lot of factors. There's no certainty in this because you could have political issues that might intervene. Technology might develop, you know, in a certain way. You have environmental factors. You know, standards might get more demanding. You know, renewable energy targets might become more. Sure, more but it surely has to be policy driven. It has to be the it government. Has, it has, yeah, it has laying un- down the policy and requiring yeah, yeah. Uh, others to follow. Yeah, unquestionably. But what what I would sense in terms of that is that I think the government, notwithstanding the good elements of the climate action plan, will have to step up its ambition in in the next decade because we're going to have huge problems in turning our our emissions down in terms of going up, in contrast to going up as they are at present. Right. What happens if we fail, if we don't meet these targets, if we don't get 70% by 2030, what happens? Well, there's, what are the consequences? There's, all, there's lots of consequences in terms of fines, but there would be huge pressure on, on, on Airgrid in particular. And and then the likelihood if they don't sort of act on these scenarios and tr- and stress test the system in terms of generating in terms of what the demand is going to likely to be, but also in terms of future need, you know, the, then then the the, the the instability of the system kicks in and, and no one wants that in a developed economy. And I think that's the point of this exercise. It, it sort of reduces the risk. It, it gives you a degree of certainty, notwithstanding the fact that, that there will be other factors that will come into play. Like there'll be some technology that we didn't anticipate in 10 years' time mm. that is really helpful. So, you know, this is probably the best way of anticipating uh, what uh, the likely scenario. Clearly, um, I would think, um, I don't know, but I would envisage that Airgrid would want either one or three scenar- the scenarios that work. And they will now be put through a rigorous uh, sort of testing in terms of scenarios out to 2040. And then uh, they will they will come back. You know, this, this is the next phase is what's called a special needs assessment you know, testing, you know, how the grid is operated and then the actual capacity of the grid itself in the context of all that kind of demand. So that's that'll be the very interesting next step. But I think you will see it narrowing in terms of going a certain course. But, you know, clearly there's issues around demand. There's issues around, you know, the generation of power itself. There, there's issues around um, interconnection, what role that plays. And I think obviously... In a in a European context, that is very important to us. Sure, and we're getting a, an interconnector with France, aren't we? That's which has been heavily yes, subsidised yeah. by the European Union. Now, consumers might wonder what what is all of this going to mean for me in my pocket? Because they probably feel that electricity prices have only been going one way uh, over the last number of years, and that's up. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're right to think that, and and that that has been the hard thing about it. But I think you, when you look at the costs particularly in relation to wind and particularly in relation to offshore, that you, you're going to see a significant redu- reduction in electricity. I, I don't have any doubt about that. In the cost of electricity? In the cost, yes. I, and I, might take some, I don't know, but it, in t- it'll take time. Uh, and then obviously there, there are certain subsidies and uh, PSO issues around a certain fuel and all that kind of stuff. You know, the, there, are, there are issues around carbon tax as well. So if you are using renewables uh, and you will have an increased opportunity to use renewables, you're going to get very significant benefit in terms of price. All right. What happens to, the, to this report now? Does this feed into government policy in any way? Well, I'm sure it will. But I think it, it primarily it's an exercise for Airgrid. And I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it will ensure that it's in a robust sort of frame 
for for the coming decades. Right. And how do we fare uh, against our peers internationally in terms of our use of renewables at the moment? Uh, well, in terms of grid, I think we're a global leader, there's no doubt about that. In terms of being able to take those those sort of disruptive elements of power like sun when the sun shines and wind when the wind blows at, at a particular time. And there's a very interesting target that's highlighted in this report, and that is that uh, by 2030, at any one point, the grid will be able to take up to 95% of those sort of non-synchronous uh, sources of, of energy, such as wind and solar. That's in contrast to the more synchronous ones, which would be gas or, you know, the stable source of power. You can, you can just switch on whenever you need it. Yeah. So it, that is another indication of big ambition. All right, Kevin, look into your crystal ball now and tell us, how, how many more years are we going to be using dirty fuels to generate electricity in Ireland? Uh, I think I think electricity will probably become the sort of best in class in, in the next 15 years. I, I genuinely believe that. I think uh, there are problem areas elsewhere in, say, for example, in transport. Uh, so, like, the, I think there's a risk that the, the, the conversion to electrified transport and adoption of EVs won't happen at the rate that's been predicted. In other words, a million vehicles on, on Irish roads, a million EVs by 2030. I think you you have a scenario where fossil fuels will be used in transport to a very significant degree because of, you know, it takes time for vehicles to turn over to a better f- mode of transport uh, up to 2040. So they're, they're, fossil fuel will be a dominant fuel source, unfortunately, for some time to come. All right, Kevin O'Sullivan, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll be talking about passenger charges at Dublin Airport. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back to this Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Uh, now, last Thursday, the aviation regulator decided to reduce passenger charges at Dublin Airport by 11% on average to 787 ahead over the next five years. Now, this should be good news for passengers in terms of lower airfares, but it has enraged the DAA, which manages the airport. The DAA says it will harm its chances of being able to raise sufficient debt to fund a €2 billion Euro upgrade of the airport's facilities, which is much needed. Now, Barry Halloran of the Irish Times has been following this story for some time and he joins me in the studio now. Barry, you're very welcome. Hey, Kieran, Give us the you. backdrop to this. Every, every five years we have these uh, rulings by the aviation regulator on passenger charges at Dublin Airport. Yeah, well, the, the Commission for Aviation Regulation sets the charges for Dublin Airport. Dublin Airport is the by far and away the biggest airport in the island. And therefore, its charges have to be regulated because it's it accounts for sort of thirty of thirty five million. It's a consumer passengers. protection mechanism, it, I guess it, you could essentially, say. yeah. Um, and what happens is is that the CAR um, every five years makes a proposal to cut charges. It then invites submissions from all interested parties, including DAA, the airlines, so on and so forth. Uh, it then makes a decision. Uh, taking some of that into account and taking some other factors into account. Um, and it made its decision last week. It, it, it Essentially, it's 787 on average over five years, but that's actually going down to 750 for the first two years. So in 2020 and 21, it's 750 ahead. And then it rises... It rises over the following years. Over the now, following three years, in the, I think. In the preliminary decision, if you like, 
they had decided that it should be 750 per year over the course of the five years. So they've actually, in effect, they've increased it, haven't they? Yes, they have increased it. There were a couple of reasons for that. And they, they, there were a, the, the main one was that they allowed Dublin extra cash for operating costs. Now, they want Dublin airports to seek more efficiencies, to cut costs, in other words. But they do see the general operating costs going up over a five-year period. So they added a, they added a, f- a few cent per head for that. They then took some away. This is a very kind of finely balanced thing, quite yeah. obviously. They then took some away to factor in that Dublin Airport now makes quite a lot of money from commercial revenues. That's the money it makes from uh, shops and so forth that are, and restaurants that are operating there. Mm. It makes quite a, quite a lot of money. I mean, I think it's something of the order of 1.4 billion is what CAR is predicting over the yeah. five-year period, which is... Not bad. Which is uh, substantial. It's, uh, it's on a level with what it's going to actually uh, collect in airport charges. Now, the DAA is not happy. And I suppose on one level, you can understand why, because the charge was previously 881 uh, under, the, under the formula um, that, that has existed for the uh, previous period. Uh, and it's coming down. But then again, you know, the number of passengers is increasing. I think it's going to go up by about a million or so a year. So, you know, what's their beef? Essentially, Dublin Airport uh, was looking for 965 ahead, if, if you like. That is what it was charging in 2018. And it maintains that if it were allowed to keep that charge, no change, not going up or down over the five year period from, you know, 2020 to 24 inclusive, this would allow it to essentially pay for much needed extension work at the airport. That's new boarding gates, new piers, new parking stands. New security as well. New security. Everyone is aware that like Dublin Airport's, a, you know, is, is literally bursting at the seams, as you point out in your column this morning. Um, but not only is it bursting at the seams, if you like, in the in the terminal and in the, the places where the, the people catch, you know, embark and disembark. It's also bursting at the seams out in the runway uh, where aircraft have to wait to buy their time to, to park when they when they land and to take off again when they're when they're departing. So Dublin, Air, Dublin Airport recognises that as to tackle all of this and it intends doing that by extending piers at the northern and southern flanks of the, the airport, if you like. And it needs about 1.8 billion to 2 billion to do that. It, it says it can do it at 965 ahead. It can raise the cash um, and it guarantees that there will be no increase. It's also said that the airlines have already agreed to this and they agreed to this in discussions in 2018. Um, and that's primarily why it's it's now raging at the, the regulator. I think they probably felt that the regulator would, would agree that this was a sensible approach as well. And yet the the regulator has, has disagreed with that. Quite strongly, actually. And they took some uh, independent financial advice before making their final decision. And that advice, in essence, it's quite complicated. It's It's very technical, but... In essence, it said there should be some flexibility over the five years and uh, recommended that the, the, the price be lifted, which it was. Um, and I think it also suggested that maybe there, there might be scope for an interim review. So if if some external event were to happen that were to impact on DAA, that um, the regulator might go back and say, OK, yeah, look, um, you can increase it. I think it's fair enough. You, you will need to do that, etc. Yeah, well, and what they, what, what's actually sprung from that is this thing that, that the CAR has called stage gating. In other words, as Dublin Airport works through its its program of works, um, you know, works through these extensions, it will at certain points sit down and talk to the the airlines and talk to the regulator and you know review how progress is going and look at what they need to do 
and what you know what has transpired in the previous year. So as you say, some unexpected external event were to affect its fortunes one way or the other, and um, all that would be taken into account. And that's where you would then get your wriggle room. It's not a million miles away from something that Aer Lingus proposed um, when this was first mooted in back in May. Aer Lingus said, well, we actually think Dublin Airport can do it at the reduced charges, but we would be, on the basis of independence advice, we would be quite happy if um, they were to increase it towards the end of this 20 to 24 period if it were to turn out to be necessary for some reason, but that would all have to be um, that that would all have to be measured and gauged independently. And interestingly, um, the DEA has kind of said that well, there's a reduction in the passenger charge coming. However, um, the difference between what people have been paying to date and what they're due to pay uh, over the next five year period will simply be pocketed by a lot of these uh, foreign owned airlines, which seem to me to be a dig at Aer Lingus, which is now owned by IAG, led by Willie Walsh. Uh, registered in Spain, but uh, based in the UK. Yeah, I think it's it, it's partly a dig at them. Um, I, you could also argue that a lot of Ryanair's shareholders are, are aren't Irish. In fact, there's a lot, there's a lot of them in the states, and a lot of them are are European. And um, they're the the you know the big players in the capital markets with whom we're all fairly familiar. So um, it, it could equally be seen as a dig at them. Ryanair and Aer Lingus are the the two biggest. Uh, what have they been saying about this decision? What, what does Ryanair think of this proposed uh, reduction? Uh, Ryanair is particularly annoyed. They actually think that the CAR is letting DAA off lightly because the CAR... It ori- wants lower charges. Yeah, the CAR originally proposed 750 ahead and Ryanair is saying that, well, the CAR has backed away from that decision and that's they, they actually wanted the straight 750 ahead over the next five years. Um, and they argue that Dublin Airport, contrary to what DAA itself says, is a very expensive airport from which to operate. Um, Aer Lingus are much more sanguine. They're quite happy with the with what um, the the CAR has decided, and uh, that's not surprising given that it 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 at least it reflects some of the some of that airline's thoughts on the whole issue. Sure. Okay. So where's the government here? DAA does have the possibility of appealing this decision. Okay, yeah, well, the, the, there is a potential next step. The DA can go to the minister and say, we want you to convene an independent panel to look at this. Um, and essentially, that kind of starts the process all over again. The DA goes in and makes its case to the panel and says the CAR got, got it wrong. Everyone else involved can equally go to, can make their submissions to the panel then and the panel can uh, rule one way or the other. There may be a judicial review route open to the DA as well. But my understanding is that the, the the panel appeal system, that's going to take about six months. Now, we're running into November. So let's say, for argument's sake, you know, you could be looking June, July before that's finally over. The DA has, I think, up to two months to, to decide on whether it's going What to happens in the meantime in terms of charges? The char- the, the, the reductions as, uh, as demanded by the CAR will apply. Should the appeal panel actually turn around and say, do you know what, the DA is right? Or should the appeal panel turn around and say, well, actually, the DA deserve a few more quid? The DA will then be able to claw that back from the airlines afterwards in the latter part of the year, the latter part of next year. Right. So it sounds like a messy process. Do we know where Shane Ross, the Minister for Transport, stands on all this? Uh, in broad terms, Ross, is, well, Ross issued a, made a policy statement a few years ago where he said that um, he wanted regulation of Dublin Airport to take the consumer's needs and to, to prioritise the consumer's needs. Currently, under the law, the the minister can intervene and tell the, the regulator, 
you must take DAA's financial needs into account. Ross and they've has, done that in the past. They've done that in the past. Ross hasn't done it this time around. He, it, it, the, that option is there for him, but it, the law doesn't oblige him to do it. Um, so Ross hasn't done it this time. Um, so I would say his actions would indicate, and clearly the, the policy statement he made a few years ago would indicate that he's more likely to favour this than not favour this. Right, okay. All right, well, listen, we'll see where that lands in, <laughs> in the future. All right, Barry Halloran, thank you for joining us. That's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Loris Larry, Kevin O'Sullivan and Barry Halloran. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today. Email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. <laughs>